My name is Kim Talus. I'm the professor and McCulloch Chair in Energy Law at Tulane University in Louisiana. I'm also the director of Tulane Center for Energy Law and a professor of European Energy Law at UEF Law School, as well as a professor of Energy Law at the University of Helsinki. This podcast is a brief comment on the general court's order in Nord Stream 2 versus the Parliament and the Council, where the general court found that the applicant did not have standing to challenge a directive directly. I'll start the podcast with some background and then discuss the Nord Stream 2 case. At the end of the podcast, I will provide some comments and views on the order of the general court in this case. Now, the ongoing energy transition within the EU creates tensions between different stakeholders and the new and amended rules of EU energy law. This tension is, of course, likely to continue with the EU 2050 decarbonization target driving legislative activity in the EU energy markets as well as some other areas of EU activity. Reaching the target will clearly require that new rules are enacted, it will require amendment to existing regulatory frameworks, and of course abolition of outdated laws and regulation. While the need for this transition is clear, energy companies as well as other stakeholders must also have the right to challenge the new laws and new and amended laws when their rights under the EU law have been violated. This of course raises the question of effective judicial protection of energy companies and other stakeholders under EU legal system. Very recently we have seen examples where the EU courts have refused to grant standing to private applicants attempting to challenge EU directly, EU acts directly before the European courts. In Carvaldo and others versus EU, the Court of Justice confirmed that the action brought by families in the EU, Kenya and Fiji against the 2018 EU climate package was inadmissible as the appellants did not, were not individually concerned by that legislative package. In Nord Stream 2 versus Parliament, the, co- the court also found the application inadmissible for different reasons. Now, these cases raise the question of the requirements to, of standing that must be satisfied by private people or private persons in challenging, especially here, EU directives directly before the European courts. The brief background to this case is that in April 2019, the Parliament and the Council adopted an amending directive that modified the 2009 Gas Market Directive and extended its applicability to EU member states' territorial waters. However, and importantly, the amendment also included a derogation from most of the provisions of the Gas Market Directive under Article, what is now Article 49A, which is available for pipelines that are completed before 23 May 2019. 
The reason for the derogation under Article 49A is that of legal certainty for investments already made. Now this change is significant because prior to the amendment all gas volumes transported through the import pipelines bringing gas to EU internal market were subject to EU gas market regulation at the landing terminal when the gas moved to EU internal pipeline system. Of course the physical structures of the pipelines will remain the same but the legal, operational and economic impact from the amendment on the affected pipeline operators are considerable. However, in practice, the number of affected pipeline operators is limited to one single pipeline, Nord Stream 2, due to the derogation regime added into the directive and its Article 49A. In this case, Nord Stream 2 challenged this amendment before the General Court and asked the Court to annul the directive completely. In support of its action, Nord Stream 2 presented a number of pleas, out of which the most important is clearly the infringement of general EU law principle of equal treatment. The applicant argued that the amending directive denies it the possibility of a derogation from the application of the EU gas market directive and its rules without considering the billions of euros already invested prior to the date of adoption of the amendment directive and even before it was first proposed. This is in contrast to all other existing offshore import pipelines which are eligible for the derogation. In essence, the General Court did not accept that Nord Stream 2 had the right to initiate a direct action against the amending directive as it lacked standing. I'll briefly now discuss the standing requirements that are the key in this case. Under fourth paragraph of Article 263 on the Treaty on the Functioning of the European Union, any natural or legal person may institute proceedings against an act addressed to that person or which is of direct and individual concern to them. For these private persons that are not addressed by the EU acts or are not addressees of the EU acts, the primary avenue to challenge a legal act from the EU has traditionally been through the preliminary rulings procedure. The availability of this preliminary rulings procedure does not exclude the possibility of a direct challenge before the European courts, but the standing requirement for private parties excludes this option in practice. We have seen over the years a lot of criticism towards the very limited right of direct actions by private applicants. Advocate Generals, General Jacobs in the UPI case gave a comprehensive and convincing argument on the reliance on the preliminary rulings procedure as an indirect way to challenge EU Act. His arguments circle around issues like uncertainty for the applicant, the long delays, additional cost, 
procedural disadvantages, competence limitations by national courts, and the fact that the, the private applicant does not have a right to have its court case heard before the European courts, but its views are of secondary importance. This creates, according to the Advocate General Jacobs, tension between the limited rights uh, of litigants and the principle of effective judicial protection and legal certainty. As I mentioned earlier, in order to challenge a legislative act of the EU directly before the European courts, the applicant must show direct and individual concern. Now, direct concern criteria requires that the measure that is contested must directly affect the legal situation of the individual and that it leaves no discretion to the addressees of the measure who are entrusted with the task of implementing it, such implementation being purely automatic and resulting solely from the rules of the contested instrument without the application of any other intermediate rules. In this particular case, the annulment action concerns a directive. Now, a directive needs to be implemented, transposed to the national legal system. The General Court, even if it argues otherwise, seems to be basing its assessment on this implementation requirement alone. However, that, is not, that approach is not in line with the existing case law. The EU courts have found that the condition of direct concern is, fatis, is satisfied if an EU or national implementation measure does exist, but in reality the EU or national authorities have no genuine discretion as to the manner in which the main act is implemented. Now, Advocate General Bobek, in, in a case uh, from 2020, explained this requirement in a clear manner. He explained that the requirement for direct concern requires a causal direct link between the challenged act and the consequences it has for the applicant. The condition of direct concern is not satisfied if there is any additional intervention which is capable of breaking that link. If the national implementation cannot break that link, then direct concern can be established. The second criteria is that of an individual concern. The leading case in this area has for the past 60 years been the Plowman test where the court explained that persons other than those to whom a decision is addressed may only claim to be individually concerned if that decision affects them by reason of certain attributes which are peculiar to them or by reason of circumstances in which they are differentiated from all other persons and by virtue of these factors distinguishes them individually just as in the case of a person addressed. In the Nord Stream 2 case, the General Court only deals with the direct concern requirement 
and does not deal with the question of individual concern. This, to me, was clearly wrong, and I will talk about that at the very end of my podcast. In Nord Stream 2 case, the court stated that the directive in question, the amending directive, cannot of itself or in itself impose obligations on Nord Stream 2 and may therefore not be relied upon as such national authorities as such by the national authorities against operators in the absence of measures transposing that directive by the authorities. So because it requires implementation, it cannot be subject or it cannot establish direct concern. After this, the General Court concluded that the correct forum for Nord Stream 2, the applicant, was the National Court. And it may have its court, this case then heard by the European courts by the, or through the preliminary rulings procedure. But as Advocate General has argued, or Advocate General Jacobs have argued, that route has significant problems for a private litigant. Now, I'll conclude the podcast with some comments to the case, or perhaps I should say some more comments to the case. First, the general court's approach is highly restrictive. It seems that in practice, the approach of the general court would exclude any possibility of a private litigant challenge a directive, simply because it requires implementing measures. In this case, it is a clear an automatic result of the gas market directive that has now been extended to apply in the territorial waters of a member state that Nord Stream 2 will be subject to unbundling, third-party access, regulated tariff regimes and other rules of the directive. And the directive's impact on all other operators of comparable import pipelines may take recourse to Article 49 derogation, which allows them to escape most obligations under the gas market directive. Now, it is true, like the General Court notes, that the directive, since its entry into force, does not produce immediate and concrete effects on the legal situation of any operators, because it needs to be transposed. However, it's also clear that the intended effect of the directive and its application by the German regulator in an application for a derogation suggests that the effect coming from the directive to Nord Stream 2 is automatic from the moment when German law took effect. And the German legislator and the national energy regulator cannot change this fact. Because in looking at or reading the case it should be kept in mind that the real margin of appreciation at the national level is extremely limited. And the impact from the directive on the applicant flows directly from the directive. The only margin available in theory at the national level concerns whether or not to grant an exemption under Article 36 of the directive, which would provide an exemption from most rules of the directive, but this exemption is available for projects 
where the final investment decision has not been taken. In case of Nord Stream 2, the FID had been taken or has been taken. So it is not eligible for the exemption. The national regulatory authorities could also provide a derogation under Article 49, but that is available for pipelines that have already been completed. These options are available for other pipelines, but they have been specifically excluded in relation to Nord Stream 2 through the wording and the intent of the directive. The General Court seems to suggest that the fact that the applicant may apply for these two options, an exemption or a derogation, in a situation where it seems clear that it does not meet the legal requirements of either of the two options, that would exclude direct effect. That seems to be somewhat problematic. A possible application under Article 36 or 49A of the directive would not, and in case of Article 49A, did not, as that application was uh, lodged by the company, they have, no, if they have no effect on the causal link between the directive and the impact on Nord Stream 2, as it does not seem to meet the legal requirements under these directives. In the specific case of Nord Stream 2, the national regulator has found that it has no genuine discretion in exercising its powers to apply Article 49 of the amended directive. Now, even if Nord Stream 2 challenged the directive and Article 49 before the national court, that procedure is very different from a direct action before the European courts. I've already discussed the problems around the national court detour to, to the European courts and similarly to that criticism by Advocate Generals, there has been proposals by Advocate General Jacobs again to relax the standing requirements. Those proposals have not been accepted by the European Court of Justice, which has stuck to its very restrictive reading of the standing requirements. But in this case, there is no need to actually depart from the established case law under uh, Article 263 TFEU. In this case, it seems to me that it would be enough if the specific details of this case were considered in detail, rather than applying what appears to be a somewhat formalistic refusal of standing by the General Court. The Court noted in its order that the fact that the contested directive is, or contested act is a directive, does not rule out the direct concern, but its argumentation seems to come back to the nature of the act over and over again. It is true that without national implementation and national application by the regulator, the Article 49A and the directive does not have an impact on the applicant. However, the end result and impact of the national measures are clear and cannot be changed.
there's no national measure that can break the link between the amended directive and its impact or intended impact on Nord Stream 2. Nord Stream 2 versus Parliament and the Council is a case that turns largely on its facts. It seems that the General Court did not take this into consideration. Because this is a special case. Rarely do we see directives where the intended effect is to target one company or one project alone. The core legal question is extremely narrow. A possible violation of principle of equal treatment under Article 49A, the derogation, of the amended directive. In a case where a question of validity is both narrow and clearly identifiable, the national detour seems to be a waste of resources for the applicant, for the national courts and for the European courts. I'll conclude with what I find to be the most important and most interesting aspect of the case. In this case, from the perspective of requirements of direct and individual concern, these two requirements are linked through Article 49A derogation regime. In other words, the evaluation of the criteria for direct concern is influenced by that of individual concern. The court has held, with some exceptions though, that these two requirements are separate. But in this case, the linkage is obvious. If the general court were to have concluded that Nord Stream 2 was individually concerned by the amending directive because of the design of the amendment is such that it subjects Nord Stream 2 to the requirements of the directive while allowing derogations for all other pipeline operators, it seems very difficult to at the same time conclude that the amending directive did not directly affect Nord Stream 2's legal position. By deciding not to engage in the analysis of the second criteria, the General Court avoid dealing with this difficult connection, which would have made the direct concern that much more apparent. At the moment, the order of the General Court has been appealed to the Court of Justice, and the next step will see what the approach of the, Gen the Court of Justice in this case will be.